Ernie Ray has a regular religious programme on Radio 4 called Beyond Belief. This week we hear journalist Bell Mooney reading a poem by Robert Hayden called Belson, The Day of Liberation. The poet Michael Simmons Roberts, Jamaican Muslim Manira Pilgrim and Canon Mark Oakley, Dean of St John's College, Cambridge, also contribute to the discussion. Well, we're exploring whether poetry is the proper language of religion. And with me are Belle Mooney, Mark Oakley, Michael Simmons-Roberts and Munira Pilgrim. Belle, you've chosen a powerful piece that reflects on the Holocaust. Why did you choose this poem? Well, I chose this poem by Robert Hayden, a black American poet I really admire. He was raised a Baptist but practised the Baha'i faith, um, which is itself very interesting because it's about unity. This poem called Belson, the Day of Liberation, is dedicated to a Dutch resistance fighter, a secular Jew, and who lost her parents in the Holocaust and was herself imprisoned. Now, the child in the poem views the liberators of, of, of Belson, who are British soldiers, of course, as saviors, as transfigured, like angels coming in, as people of beauty and strength. And so... This poem, to me, expresses absolute universality. And it is a reminder that the human spirit has no colour or creed or culture or class. It's transcendent. And I find this poem transcendent. So it's called Belson, Day of Liberation by Robert Hayden for Rosie. Her parents and her dolls destroyed... Her childhood foreclosed. She watched the foreign soldiers from the sunlit window whose black bars were crooked crosses inked upon her pallid face. Liebchen, Liebchen, you should be in bed. But she felt ill no longer. And because that day was a holy day, when even the dead, it seemed, must rise she was allowed to stay and see the golden strangers who were father, brother, and her dream of God. Afterwards, she said, they were so beautiful and they were not afraid. Michael, I'm struck by that enigmatic phrase at the end, they were so beautiful and they were not afraid. Words of a child who'd seen a lot of ugliness and known a lot of fear. Mm. I, I think it's incredibly moving and, and powerful. And that link between beauty and deliverance, beauty and rescue, I love Robert Hayden's work. And it's a note that he strikes a lot, that sense that um, another American poet, John Berryman, at a crisis in his life, talked about the, the God of rescue. He said, this is the only one I've got left, is the idea, I cling on to the idea of the God of rescue. And this seems to me to be the God of rescue at the end of the Robert Hayden poem. And the idea that that comes with, of all the things you could say of someone who's, who's rescuing you, to point out their beauty, I think, is, is a very profound... It's Keatsian, isn't it? The, the truth and beauty arriving as one. Manira? I think what I really liked about the poem was just... It just reminded me that, like, having young people, having children around 
makes us as a species a very beautiful species. There's always hope. There's always chance. There's always an opportunity to see beauty, even in some of the dullest moments, in some of the moments where we may, you know, as adults, we may cry, we may want to give up. A child would, could turn that all around, and that's what I loved about the poem. Mark? Yes, I mean, I think it was Adorno who, who said no poetry after Auschwitz, but this is therefore a very courageous poem to talk of the dream of God in the shadow of such horrific history. I admire it for that. For me, because it does that, it's placing the, as it were, the odd back into God. Uh, there's a lot of domesticated, cheap, easy talk about God, uh, and there shouldn't be. And this is, this is a daring thing to do, to talk about concentration camps and the dream of God in the same work. And uh, that, for me, is very provoking. The question that lies at the heart of the religious quest, you know, ultimately, is reality trustworthy? Uh, and it hovers, I think, at the end of that poem. And it makes you know, the 15th of April, 1945, a holy day. And we know from the descriptions of what it was like in Belson, it was hell. So it is incredibly, it's a great leap of imagination and faith to call that day holy. But in this poem, it is holy. It also reminds me of that expression, uh, I can't remember who says it, but if you're going to go to hell, make sure you don't come back empty-handed. Uh, and even if it was just that poem that came back, maybe that's enough.
Alan Sorensen is Church of Scotland Ministry in Greenock. Alan has given us permission to broadcast some of his short God spots, and today he tells us to avoid vanity. Do you want to know how to avoid being vain? Dead simple. Get to know yourself. Want to know how to get to know yourself? Look in a mirror. Do you want to know the best mirror around? Read the Bible. Want to know why you should read the Bible? Because it's full of people just like you and me. A shower of miserable sinners. Liars, cheats, con men, murderers, gossips, loudmouths, boars, satanists, scrooges, despots and nice churchgoers. Want to know what happens when you read about all of them? You think, oh good, I'm not like that. And then you start to become vain. So, do you want to know how to avoid being vain? <laughs> Repetitive blessings to you. Toodaloo the new. Jeremy Irons has recorded the Psalms from the authorised version of the Bible. Today we hear Jeremy reading Psalm 140. It's followed by O Manum Mysterium by Morton Lauritsen, sung by Ensemble Aura, conducted by Susie Digby. Deliver me, O Lord, from the evil man. Preserve me from the violent man, which imagine mischiefs in their heart. Continually are they gathered together for war. They have sharpened their tongues like a serpent. Adder's poison is under their lips, Selah. Keep me, O Lord, from the hands of the wicked. Preserve me from the violent man who have purposed to overthrow my goings. The proud have hid a snare for me, and cords. They have spread a net by the wayside. They have set gins for me, Selah. I said unto the Lord, Thou art my God. Hear the voice of my supplications, O Lord. O God the Lord, the strength of my salvation, Thou hast covered my head in the day of battle. Grant not, O Lord, the desires of the wicked. Further not his wicked device, lest they exalt themselves, Selah. As for the head of those that compass me about, let the mischief of their own lips cover them. Let burning coals fall upon them. Let them be cast into the fire, into deep pits, that they rise not up again. Let not an evil speaker be established in the earth. Evil shall hunt the violent man to overthrow him. I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and the right of the poor. Surely the righteous shall give thanks unto thy name. The upright shall dwell in thy presence.
Larry Gentis has produced a series of talks for us where he imagines himself to be a Bible character. Today he describes God's choice of Moses as leader of the people of Israel. My name is Moses, and as I said when we last spoke, I was settled in the land of Midian, had married a woman from the land called Zipporah, and was happy with my quiet life with my newfound family. One day was much like another, and I would have been most content for things to remain as they were. I had no ambitions of authority and power. What good would that do to me compared with my beautiful wife, healthy children, and an extended family who loved me? But it all changed one fine day. I was leading my flock to the west side of Mount Horeb and saw an amazing sight. A bush was on fire, but it wasn't being consumed. Normally, it would be turned to ashes within moments, but this one was burning but remained intact. So, I went closer, and what I can only call a heavenly being appeared and began speaking to me. He called me by name and told me not to come any closer, because this was holy ground, and to remove my sandals, saying he was the God of my forefathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He said he'd seen the cruel slavery that the Hebrews were living in, and that he was going to free them and take them to a land that was plentiful and good, and he was going to judge the Egyptians for having enslaved them, and I was chosen by him to go to Pharaoh and to bring them out of Egypt. At this point I asked the obvious question, why me? He replied, certainly I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this very mountain. Then came my second question. When I tell them the God of your father sent me to you, what shall I say is your name? God said to me, I am that I am. You shall say that I am has sent me to you. He told me to tell the Hebrews his plan to free them from slavery and to move them into a land flowing with milk and honey. He instructed me to tell Pharaoh he would go into the wilderness three days' journey in order to make sacrifices. And although the Hebrews will believe you and follow you, Pharaoh will harden his heart and refuse to let you go. And he would strike the land of Egypt with so many plagues and miracles that Pharaoh would have to let them go. And get this, the Egyptians would give us huge treasures of silver and gold as we leave the land. I asked him at that point what to do if the Hebrews would not want to believe me. But really what I meant is I didn't want to do what he told me to do. After all, I loved this life in Midian and didn't want to leave the good life I had. Then he asked me what was in my hand. I replied, a staff. He said, throw it on the ground. When I did, it turned into a snake and I ran from it, as one would. But the Lord told me to take it by the tail and pick it up again. And when, it, when I did, it became a staff again. Then he told me to put my hand inside my garment, and when I pulled it out, it became leprous, as white as snow, which was frightening as well. He told me to put it in again, and when I pulled it out, it returned to a normal hand. I suppose that was to let me know he was well able to protect me and would not let me come to any harm. 
he also said that if they didn't believe that he sent me, I was to take some water from the Nile River, pour it out, and it would become blood. Okay. I was becoming more and more apprehensive because my arguments to stay where I was really weren't working. So my next question was more of a supplication. Please, Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since you've spoken to your servant, for I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue. His reply was swift and clear. Who has made man's mouth, or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now then go, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. I answered him, please, Lord, now send the message by whomever you will. I could see I'd made him angry by this statement, and it was a bad idea to provoke him. As he said, is there not your brother Aaron the Levite? I know that he speaks fluently, and moreover, behold, he's coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You are to speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and his mouth. I will teach you what you are to do. Moreover, he shall speak for you to the people, and he will be as a mouth for you, and you will be as God to him. You shall take in your hand this staff, with which you shall perform the signs. So, there you have the questions that beg answers. The only thing is, you don't always get the answers you fancy. So, here I am, off to Egypt, the last place on earth I want to go. And I hope to see you there. But I don't think it's going to be boring. I got answers to my questions, but they weren't what I wanted to hear.
wind and songsters of the Salvation Army with Trusting as the Moments Fly. The tune was written by Ira Sankey of the Moody and Sankey combination, late 19th, early 20th century. Now, believing in someone can seem like an easy ask until it demands something more than lip service. There's a story from the mid-1800s about an amazing tightrope walker called the Great Blondin. Blondin is reported to have performed all sorts of amazing feats. On the 30th of June, 1859, when people heard he was going to walk across the Niagara Falls on a tightrope, about 25,000 arrived by train and steamer to spread out along the banks on the American and Canadian sides to get the best view. But what set Blondin apart from all the other tightrope walkers that attempted this is that he knew how to engage with the crowds who came to watch him. Blondin would ask those who came to see his amazing feats, do you believe that I, the great Blondin, can successfully cross high above the river on a tightrope? And the crowd would yell back, we believe, and Blondin would walk across the rope. Then he would ask, do you believe that I, the great Blondin, can again cross over the Niagara River on this tightrope, blindfolded? And the crowd would cheer and they would shout, we believe. And that sort of routine would continue in a sack, pushing a wheelbarrow, until finally Blondin would ask, do you believe that I, the great Blondin, can successfully cross over the Niagara River on this tightrope with a man on my back. And by this point, the crowd was ready to believe anything. And so they would shout, we believe. And Blondin would wait for the shouts to die down. And then he would ask, who wants to go first? And there would be silence. But on one occasion, the feat was performed as Blondin carried his manager, Harry Colcord, across on his back. You see, there's believing and then there's believing. There's a believing that something is possible and there's a believing that requires taking a risk and trusting our very lives. Believing in Jesus is more than just believing that he existed or even that he was a great teacher. Believing in Jesus is about a relationship and all relationships have to be nurtured each and every day. It's about getting to know someone, accepting who they are and what they are about. That's how trust grows. That's the work of believing. So the question then for you and for me is the same one that Blondin would ask the crowds. Do you believe? 